The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Zionism was about setting up a nation state violently. It was supposed to be a liberal nation state, but it required a kind of, you know, nationalism and violence that in general, you know, the Cold War liberals didn't get enthusiastic about, even though it was conquering the whole world in the form of decolonization. And so to me, what's remarkable is, is not that Cold War liberals kind of weren't interventionists yet of the neoconservative kind in the 40s and 50s, as that they really say nothing about the decolonization movement of that very era. And again, the reason that's significant is it fits with my general argument in the book, which is that they seem to be giving up on the 19th century version of liberalism. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 8th, 2023. Liberalism today is under attack, as it often has been. Samuel Moyne, the Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University, believes that liberalism's failures and a path to its better future can be discerned through a study of how liberal intellectuals reacted to the rise of fascism and Nazism during the World War II period, and especially to Soviet communism during the Cold War. I sat down to talk to Moyne about his new book on the topic, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. We discussed how and why Cold War liberals such as Isaiah Berlin and Gertrude Himmelfarb transformed liberalism, and why he thinks the transformation has had deleterious effects on U.S. foreign and domestic policy. We also discussed the aims of intellectual history and the relationship between his project and recent anti-liberal projects from the right. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 8. Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Sam, your new book is called Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Can you tell us what it's about? It's a book about the, the mutation of liberalism, at least liberal thought, in the middle of the 20th century. And I, I argue through a series of character studies of leading thinkers that liberalism took a wrong turn then. And I, I argue that matters because since the election of Donald Trump, we've been in a kind of period of of referendum around liberalism, arguing about whether it's failed, why it failed, what work it needs, if any. And my intervention is to say we ought to look back at what happened to liberalism in the Cold War and see if we can correct it. Great. So let's unpack that. What was pre-Cold War liberalism like? What what was it, this thing that you think was um, 
mutated or transformed during the Cold War? So it, it's it's a tough question because there's there's tons of perspectives on when liberalism began and what it was uh, even before World War II, let alone since. And a lot of that debate concerns whether we should track a, a, a set of concepts or commitments or a word. As you know, Americans, aside from a few people during Reconstruction, don't really call themselves liberals in large numbers af- until after World War One. Although by then, there's already a, a British liberal party, a German liberal party, and there have been self-styled liberal thinkers since the 19th century. What, what I say, I side with those who claim that liberalism really began not in the days of John Locke, but after the French Revolution as, as really less an Anglo-American phenomenon than first a continental European phenomenon. And these are people who essentially want to save the promise of the French Revolution and uh, set up a society of free and equal citizens. And in the course of that, they established some really interesting relationships to uh, Christianity. And they say that they, they kind of want a successor to Christianity. Liberalism is not going to be about tolerating all the different sects of religion, but about establishing a kind of new faith. And it's committed to like how we should live uh, as individuals and groups. And you see this in, in really some of the first self-styled liberal thinkers, like the Swiss thinker Benjamin Constant and the French traveler Alexis de Tocqueville. And they also have a view about progress, that liberalism is something that's emergent because freedom and equality doesn't just materialize all at once. It has to be built over time and through institutions. And they're, they're optimists. That's really the main thing, that they see liberalism as something that will set us free over time, uh, but it requires a, a certain kind of set of, of, of political institutions. And my, my sense is that Cold War liberal thinkers really turn their backs on all of that prior optimism and liberalism and get really afraid of the future and of the state, which um, earlier liberals had talked about quite upliftingly as, as a kind of tool to make us free and equal. And they're also very nervous about economic fairness, which they as- begin to associate with socialism, which they also associate with you know, the, the wrong side in the Cold War. And so all of these things, I think, are, are massive transformations of what liberalism has been. So a couple more questions on that. So you draw on the continental tradition of liberalism more than I'm used to seeing in American studies. And how prevalent were those ideas in U.S. liberalism? I mean, did they have a place in U.S. liberalism before the Cold War? I, I think to an extent. So, you know, um, American liberalism, as I said, you know, we, we could debate how old it is, when who's associated with it before World War II. There's a, a very famous book by Lewis Hartz, 
which says that America just has been liberal since its very beginning, and everyone in America uh, is is a liberal just kind of by being born in this country. And of course, that was a classic Cold War liberal view, which assumed that like there had not been a right in the United States and there was no aristocracy to overthrow, no kings, leaving aside George III. And there was also no left. Uh, and so kind of without having liberal thinkers, Americans were just automatically liberal in that view. Now, almost no one thinks that's, you know, right uh, anymore. And especially if we look at look for people who are calling themselves liberals, or really looking at the founding of the New Republic magazine, by people like Felix Frankfurter, after World War One, and I think they retain a lot of the European tradition, they're strongly influenced by it, especially when it comes to the interventionist state that is supposed to make people free and equal. Um, not assume they already are and engage in redistribution uh, for the sake of a free and equal society. That's what liberalism is about leading through, you know, probably it's most classic American representative before World War II. That's John Dewey. And yet that whole tradition gets challenged, uh, if not overthrown after World War II. So one more question before we get to World War II and the Cold War. So I still have this is not because of your book. It's just a problem I have with understanding liberalism. It's such an expansive and changing concept. It seems that everyone is always trying to appropriate. What is, at least in the pre-Cold War period, what was the main antonym? Who was, what was the enemy of liberalism and what was it seen to be against in the prevailing pre-World War II understanding or even pre-World War I understanding? So, you're absolutely right that these stories are not apolitical. And by telling a particular story about liberalism, you're tell, telling kind of what kind of liberal you are or today post-liberal, since, of course, the so-called post-liberals also have their narratives about where liberalism came from and, and what it is. I think most people in in, in kind of history and history of political thought, think a big mistake was made in the 20th century when John Locke, kind of seen as America's philosopher, got associated with liberalism, which didn't emerge, you know, for more than a century after Locke lived. And in actual American politics in the early days, Locke figured, as you know, mainly as someone who justified violent revolution. Uh, in which he himself participated in his own country, and as well as someone who justified ethnic cleansing in cases like Johnson v. McIntosh. So I think we have to look in a very different place. And I think liberals in European history, who are the first ones, are really trying to overcome the old regime, monarchy and aristocracy, and figure out what it means to have a society not based on those principles. Uh, and so they're, they're also nervous about attempts to do that very thing, like in the French Revolution, which they think, understandably, went dreadfully wrong. So they're, they're trying to save the legacy of the French Revolution, which confronted aristocracy and monarchy while correcting for its mistakes. And so their main opponent is conservatism or reaction. Uh, which are, you know, that's the other side of of politics for the 19th century 
in European history since the conservatives don't go away, obviously, and they, they, they bring monarchy back repeatedly, even in places where it ends, like in France. Okay, that's helpful. Let's turn to World War II and the Cold War and the transformation of liberalism. So what were the main, what were the main moving parts? So, you know, Cold War liberalism is a label that the group of people I'm talking about acquired kind of after they lost their cultural authority. This is in the 1960s. And it's, it, it's in a way a kind of derogatory label. It's just that many people since that period in the 60s have reclaimed Cold War liberalism as, as a good thing and celebrated it. So now it's the phrase we use to describe uh, the group of people I'm talking about, Isaiah Berlin, the Oxford professor, probably the most you know famous among them. But the truth is that when we look at their lives, as I've done in this book, most of them really are responding to the middle of the 20th century and the dire straits for liberalism in that period with the collapse of the Weimar Republic and other things before the Cold War dawns. Then they become very famous and they they do most of their writing during the Cold War, uh, and so what what is their what is their writing about? Well, as I see it, they do a few things. One is to treat emancipation as dangerous. By emancipation, I just mean the campaign and history to create a free and equal society. In their time, that project gets kind of taken over by the Soviets who claim to be doing it better. And the liberals of the middle of the 20th century, instead of kind of trying to take that project back and calling the Soviets false claimants to the you know, legacy of liberalism, which had always promised emancipation, they give it up. They begin to say that we shouldn't pursue freedom and equality, because if we do, we might risk the terrorism and violence of the Soviet Union. And in particular, they uh, begin to say that we shouldn't think of freedom and equality as things that emerge in history, um, that we have to build over time, because they think of history as something that is usually, you know, cited uh, as an alibi for terror. Now we're not. We're, this may you know not ring true to us. We're used to Barack Obama, who you know says things like you know the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's actually what the Soviets used to say, and it was because of that that liberals kind of gave up on history in the middle of the 20th century and didn't think it was on their side or worried that it wasn't. So I see this as a pretty massive change because it breaks with the kind of optimistic outlook of liberals before that time. What do you mean when, when you say that they came to think that the that emancipation was dangerous. Could you just unpack what you mean by emancipation and what the Soviets meant by emancipation and what, what that concept meant? So in the 19th century, you know, Tocqueville had said, we, we need to be given high aims uh, because democracy can make us free and equal, can also lead in the wrong direction. And he calls on politicians and philosophers to... Uh, make us aim high. Uh, it's just that in the middle of the 20th century, it, it, it liberals begin to think that 
you know, first the Soviets have stolen a march on them and, and, and are the ones claiming as, as communists used to say that they would build a radiant future. And that's what all the, you know, communist propaganda is about. And the Cold War liberals also begin partly through personal experience, many of them having been on the left in the 20s and 30s, to think that liberals have a kind of innocence that they need to overcome because they drink the Kool-Aid of progress and want it more rapidly than they, they can get it. And so they're, they're going to be tempted to embrace uh, the, the, the Soviets or some other, you know, leftish uh, kind of force and uh, get fooled into backing evil. And so it's, it's really for that reason that comes out very strongly in, you know, the work of one of the, uh, the gentlemen I study, Lionel Trilling, that liberals become very cautious. They say we need to be disabused about emancipation because it's usually a kind of pretext for its opposite. And so we need to be very wary of those who claim to make us free and equal. But the worry that I have is that, you know, in saying so, they came near abandoning the very liberalism that they set out to defend more plausibly. Okay, I want to unpack a lot of that with regard to some of the some of the intellectuals that you discuss. But one more bigger picture question. I mean, part of the, as I read your book, part of what happened with Cold War liberals and their kind of reaction to war, the horrors of World War II following on World War I, the Holocaust, the rise of the Soviet Union, totalitarianism, fascism, communism, that whole cluster of things, which was seen as kind of a huge threat to the United States is, is what they were reacting to. And part of their reaction, as you describe in the book, is questioning their assumptions about human nature, about the perfectionism of human beings, about optimism, as you just said. And it strikes me that one reaction I had to the book was that their reaction was perfectly rational given what they had been through and what they were going through and what American society was experiencing and what global society was experiencing. So before we get into the details of what they thought, wasn't that, <laughs> that just part of the furniture of the universe that they needed to deal with and, and needed to update liberalism to deal with? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the, the people I canvass deserve some kind of empathy uh, in the sense that they came by their views honestly. Now, of course, a lot of people responded in a different way. And they thought that there were other possibilities. I mean, the Soviet Union was our ally during World War II. We can debate whether the Cold War struggle was inevitable, how threatening the Soviet Union was to our national interests, et cetera. But there were some folks who uh, wanted to take the, uh, America in a, a kind of more Soviet direction. And of course, the World War II American state became a planning state. The Cold War liberals, I argue, kind of changed liberal theory in this period of the 1940s and 50s. But liberal practice is still about the New Deal and maybe extending it through the period of the Great Society and using the state 
to right old wrongs and bring about a more genuine, you know, freedom and equality. So there, there were a lot of choices that are being made and I'm, I'm dramatizing in a way how understandable it was for, for these people to respond to history that went a very different way in the 20th century. The state came to play a very different role. It, it killed a lot of people than people in the 19th century could ever have anticipated. And, and yet at the same time, it wasn't obvious to respond in the kind of traumatized way the Cold War liberals did by, in a sense, calling the game and saying, all we can do now is, is erect a liberalism that's about preserving freedom against the state because emancipation you know, will, will lead in the wrong direction. And, and, and so I, I want to fault them, but it's not that I think that they didn't come by their, their views a bit through the experiences that they had. Okay, let's talk about some of these figures. We don't have time to talk about all six that you discuss in detail. So I propose that we talk about a handful, maybe half of those. And why don't we start with Isaiah Berlin? Uh, many of our listeners will know who that is. But one of the great things about the book is that in addition to discussing these thinkers' ideas, you kind of tell us who they are and where they fit in in the world. And so if you could maybe start off with Berlin, tell us who he was and where he fits into this picture. So Berlin it was uh, a, a great Oxford Don. I actually you know, wrote this book initially as a series of lectures uh, that I gave at the University of Oxford, and I sat daily while preparing the lectures in All Souls College, where he had been a resident before he um, moved on. And you know, he's best remembered for a lecture he gave in 1958 called uh, Two Concepts of Liberty, which is, is really a Cold War tract that officially is kind of devoted to analytically distinguishing a more libertarian conception of freedom defined as non-interference, especially non-interference from the state uh, on the one hand, and a so-called positive liberty, which is about self-realization that sometimes requires the state uh, to bring about. And everyone understood at the time that this was a defense of the Cold War West and its, its superiority uh, compared to the Cold War East or socialism generally. And, you know, the, the reason I spotlight him uh, is for, for really, really twofold. One is that I want to give him, like all the figures in the book, some love. I argue in the lecture that's about him, the chapter now, that he also had a side that wanted to honor the, the 19th century liberals for their embrace of a concept of the highest life. Again, as I said earlier, most liberals today, like John Rawls, think of, of liberalism as a, a philosophy that allows people of very different perspectives and religions to get along. Let's call that a kind of tolerationist model of liberalism. And Berlin understood that that's not what liberalism was in the beginning in figures like Tocqueville and his disciple, John Stuart Mill. Liberalism was kind of about saying uh, that we should you know, for public and private purposes, aim for something that it makes our lives uh, good. And that's kind of 
being interesting or in, in engaging in self-creation. This is why, you know, Mill thought he was a utilitarian, but if you read on Liberty, the whole thing's about how we should uh, strive for individuality. But then Berlin's Im- important for a second reason in the book, which is that I think that his views made him very proximate to the neoliberals of his time and since. And Ex- explain explain what you mean by neoliberals, please. So n- neoliberals were people who cared mostly about not negative liberty in general, but economic liberty from the state in particular. The most famous at, at the time that the Cold War liberals get their start is Friedrich Hayek, but there have been many since. And most people now agree that neoliberalism kind of redefined our societies in practice starting in the 1970s. And basically what I I try to argue through Berlin's case is that Cold War liberalism is definitely not the same thing as neoliberalism. Indeed, it seems as if Berlin basically supported the welfare state. And he's pretty critical of Hayek uh, in private comments, both before and after the Cold War. And yet, I, I try to argue that the, the redefinition of liberalism that the Cold War liberals engage in, Berlin as an obvious example, places them a lot more proximate to neoliberalism than we might like. I mean, after all, the whole point of his famous lecture on the two concepts of liberty is to prioritize freedom from the state, including, presumably, redistributive policy. And so I want to argue that Cold War liberals shouldn't be equated with neoliberals, but they made liberalism a lot more like it and maybe set up uh, neoliberalism for, you know, its, its current ascendancy. So just to make sure everyone understands and that I understand, so just, and to be a little bit more um, concrete at least, or practical sure. maybe, by neoliberalism you mean at home – extreme market capitalism, limited regulation, and you mean internationally a kind of extreme free trade regime. That's right. And the claim you're making is that Berlin's uh, elevated concept of negative liberty kind of went hand in glove with these ideas, which were in the ascendance at the same time. Is that, is that right? I'd put it a different way because okay. it's not like, you know, a big conspiracy. No, it's, no, I didn't mean to suggest that, but they were... Sure. They, so tell us what the relationship yeah, is. Yeah, that's that's right. So, I mean, if you think about, you know, the way we teach the history of political thought in Harvard College or Yale College, you know, for there, there are a lot of canonical texts. Then we get to the middle of the 20th century when liberals in practice following FDR in our country are building the biggest and most interventionist liberal states ever, before or since. And... Yet, we don't have a text that justifies this that we teach students. Instead, we have Isaiah Berlin. So from the very period when under Dwight Eisenhower, you've got over 90% marginal tax rate in the United States, you've got Isaiah Berlin arguing for freedom from the state. And there's this mismatch. And so my suggestion is that Cold War liberals were so anxious about emancipation that they failed to defend it when it was actually happening. And that, I think, was a gift, uh, let's put it that way, to neoliberals who then begin to make the same kinds of libertarian arguments 
that Berlin did. It's just they apply them to things Berlin didn't, like taxation, uh, regulation, and you know trade. So you say that Berlin was critical of Hayek and his correspondence, but was there ever a public discussion among the Cold War liberals about the kind of parallels here between Cold War liberalism and neoliberalism or whatever you want to call the relationship? I mean, they, they clearly were operating in the same universe of ideas, and yet the Cold War liberals weren't libertarians in the sense I think that Hayek was. So how did they deal with this with the kind of intersection of the ideas? I, th- I think it's a fair question. And, you know, this this kind of book, which is just scratches the surface by looking at some individuals and, you know, really what they said to the public doesn't take the place of, you know, a bigger study of, you know, the, these relationships. And I, I just indicate a little bit about it. But w- what's clear, I think, is that Cold War liberals mainly thought that it was it was valuable to have a common front against communism and things they equated with communism sometimes like domestic socialism and you know it's for that reason that another character in my book Karl Popper uh, having been helped to migrate to England by Hayek and given a job at the London School of Economics attends the Montpellier Society even though Popper had you know emerged as a socialist so there's 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 a common front attitude, and then there are times uh, when Cold War liberals directly attack Hayek and other neoliberals. A famous case would be the French Cold War liberal Raymond Aron, who, in in his own theory of freedom, is much more directly kind of antagonistic to Hayek in public than Berlin ever was. And so there's a complicated story, but I think we could wish if we think this kind of, you know, egghead theory matters at all, that Cold War liberals had in a sense gotten their enemies right because they thought the Soviet Union and what it stood for was so threatening that they missed, in a sense, the winner on the make that was neoliberalism and that has really won the Soviet Union proved, you know, not a paper tiger, but it lost the Cold War. Neoliberalism has won the sweepstakes of history to date. Uh, And I think what we're living through might lead Cold War liberals, uh, if they were around today, to revisit their failure to confront neoliberalism uh, and their failure to argue more directly for emancipation through the state than they actually did. Okay, we'll come back to that idea when we get to current events. Um, let's move to Gertrude Hemmelfarb. Where does she fit into this? She fits in because I, I really wanted to show that not only does neoliberalism have a longer history in relation to, you know, in some complex way to Cold War liberalism than some people think, but the same is true of neoconservatism. I pay attention to Himmelfarb sort of for a parallel reason to the reason I focus on Berlin so much. The difference is that she was obscure and much younger uh, at the time Berlin, you know, became a a kind of Cold War icon. And yet I think Himmelfarb is an, an incredibly revealing intellectual. She becomes a Cold War liberal in the 1940s. But I argue that just as Berlin has these very complex relations to neoliberalism, Himmelfarb in this period was 
taking her first steps on the road to what she became. And of course, that's one of the founders of neoconservatism. She's, uh, if she's remembered at all, uh, is remembered as the wife of Irving Kristol and the mother of neoconservative intellectual today, William Kristol. But I'm convinced that she may have been really the pioneer of neoconservatism. And so what I try to show is that her first steps were really those of a Cold War liberal doing what Cold War liberals did, rejecting uh, emancipation, casting doubt on progress, and giving up on a liberalism that was going to be ambitious and emancipatory because of where she thought it could lead. And my suggestion is that it's out of that transformation of liberalism in the middle of the 20th century that we should begin to think about the emergence of neoconservatism later. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life. What would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire And you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. 
Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So tell us, for those of us who don't know what ne what you mean by neoconservatism, and how did those common assumptions with the Cold War liberals lead her on that path? So neoconservatism is, is most famous or notorious today as a foreign policy doctrine, largely because some neoconservatives got a lot of power briefly after the election of George W. Bush in our lifetimes. But long ago, neoconservatism emerged 
as a domestic policy doctrine, uh, really in the 1960s and 1970s. And it, it was really born out of skepticism of Lyndon Johnson's great society and especially his politics of, of racial emancipation. And many of those associated with neoconservatism in, in that age, like the Crystals, became central intellectuals in the Reagan Revolution, which was a neoliberal event, but also a neoconservative one because the, the neoconservatives played such a, a large role. And Himmelfarb was very active, and not just in the 40s when I study her, but in the 1960s when she became famous um, really for the kind of politics we associate with William Bennett. Um, if that name means uh, anything to people anymore, which was really a kind of argument that the public can't guarantee morality. We really need families to do that. And, you know, the suggestion was that welfare checks uh, from the state, you know, to make people's lives better are a bad idea because they create a culture of dependency. And, you know, on this argument, uh, only, you know, a kind of Victorian ethic of responsibility can can allow people, including black people, to make their lives better. Those were Himmelfarb's kind of very famous ideas in the 1980s when she was central to, you know, the, the destruction of the American welfare state to the extent she, there was one. In the 40s, she was not a conservative yet, let alone a neoconservative. But what I all I want to suggest is that she's a really interesting person back then, too, because she tries to reform liberalism for some of the same reasons as the others in the book. And she makes it a lot more conservative than it had been uh, in doing so. And the arguments she offers are the ones we've surveyed. She says, look, liberalism has been too emancipatory. And it doesn't recognize that it really needs to defend freedom against its enemies, most obviously the Soviet Union. And it also risks fooling a lot of people into backing the wrong forces in history if it's too ambitious, aims too much at equality, and so should stick to freedom alone, especially freedom from the state. And so these are the uh, ideas that you know she's trying to you know, make more popular in the 1940s. And I just argue that it's a kind of step on the road to neoconservatism later. But you focused mostly on the domestic elements of neoconservatism. What about the foreign policy elements? Well, there, you know, I think it's, it's, it's complicated because, as you know, Cold War liberals had a lot of different views, actually, about how we should face down the Soviet Union. You know, there was containment and there was rollback. Uh, and the neoconservatives really are, are, are from in their foreign policy views, come out of right-leaning parts of the Democratic Party associated, you know, very famously with a Washington state senator named Henry M. Jackson, um, who really, you know, disagreed with Jimmy Carter's detente policies and Richard Nixon's before that. And so there's, there's not, a, I think, a tight connection between domestic policy neoconservatism, which is, you know, where it gets its start. And the the kinds of people who join in and join the Reagan revolution for that matter, 
as part of the 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 more antagonistic you know foreign policy views that neoconservatism is now famous for so i think i'm not trying to tell that story but of course it's very significant that cold war liberalism is a liberalism that unlike earlier um liberalism is looking for enemies is very worried that enemies threaten freedom and to me all of that is very familiar from our lifetimes because that's how neoconservatives did see and do see the world let me try to suggest a, a stronger connection i mean you don't talk much about arthur schlesinger jr in the book um no. as you say at the beginning and we can talk about that later maybe but he was a central cold war liberal american cold war liberal and Correct. he viewed what people now call the liberalism of fear as maybe he didn't view the liberalism of fear, but his view was growing out of the same premises in reaction to the international predicament, the Soviet union, the rise of China, the Korean war, the cold war for someone who wrote the Imperial presidency in the early 1970s in the 1940s and fifties, he was extremely militaristic and interventionist. And for him, it grew out of, uh, the same basic set of principles, I think, that you've been talking about with regard to the other thinkers. So is there a connection there, th theoretically or conceptually, even if it doesn't come out of Himmelfarb? I think so. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to say because in his, in, in his early career, when he first kind of announces Cold War liberalism in his famous book, The Vital Center, I think Cold War liberals are are antagonistic, clearly, to the Soviet Union uh, and to world communism, but they haven't yet set themselves on the kind of very aggressive militaristic foreign policy that they they end up adopting. And then, in part for that reason, some Cold War liberals, um, having you know tolerated some of the adventurism of American foreign policy in the fifties and sixties begin to change their minds about what they were arguing for when they see the Vietnam War unfold. And Schlesinger is a classic example of that. I mean, he's part of the Kennedy White House famously and writes early in the Vietnam War in support of it, but by the end has become, uh, you know, like most people when it goes south, a critic of it. Maybe more generally, I think you know, the, the Cold War liberals, I mean, we have to be generous to them. They're not neoconservatives from the start. And many of them, you know, see ways of coexisting with the Soviet Union and mainly want to safeguard freedom where it at least it already exists in the West. And they, they don't have a big project of making the rest of the world free. Actually, I criticize them in the book partly for that reason, since many Cold War liberals didn't think that they they really had a global program of emancipation neoconservatives in the in the long run certainly did so there are definitely some connections i'm not denying that but i don't focus on foreign policy so much in the book because we instead of taking a snapshot of these people in the 40s when i think they haven't really made up their mind about their foreign policy we'd have to you know study their evolution in relation to various wars over decades but you do talk about, maybe not with regard to Himmelfarb, I can't remember, but you do talk about the relationship between this group of thinkers and the post-colonial movement yes. and Zionism. So could you yes. just, which is which is obviously 
about foreign policy? Because you just say a few sure. words about how that fits into this. Sure. So I'm really talking in this book about the the kind of early Cold War liberals when they their their foreign policy, you know, has you know, has not been clarified or they haven't made up their mind in relation to these experiences. In the 1960s, I mean, many people, many historians and uh, would use the phrase Cold War liberalism to refer to the very aggressive kinds of, you know, developmentalist and rollback, you know, foreign policy ventures of the 1960s. And I, d- I don't really go there, although I think it's a really important topic. Where I do focus is on how all the Cold War liberals were not only Jews, but Zionists. And the reason that matters in my book is because, you know, Zionism was about setting up a nation state violently. It was supposed to be a liberal nation state, but uh, it required a kind of, you know, nationalism and violence that in general, you know, the Cold War liberals didn't get enthusiastic about even though it was conquering the whole world in the form of decolonization. And so to me, what's remarkable is, is not that Cold War liberals kind of weren't interventionists yet of the neoconservative kind in the 40s and 50s, as that they really say nothing about the decolonization movement of that ver- very era. And again, the reason that's significant is it fits with my general argument in the book, which is that they seem to be giving up on the 19th century version of liberalism, which had been about, you know, nationalism and at times violence uh, in the name of freedom and equality, except for one place, which of course is Israel, where they do back those things. And so it's a kind of strange tension, I think, at the heart of their thought. Okay, let's speak about Judith Sklar, who my sense is, is your favorite of these six thinkers, but maybe you can disabuse me about that. Well, I like Schlar. I also like Trilling, uh, mainly because in in you know reading him and thinking about him, I, I thought he came off as a kind of internal critic of the uh, Cold War liberals, who you know became one of the most famous, a kind of icon for people around the New Republic magazine in the 1990s and after. But when read closely, actually comes very near rejecting Cold War liberalism. And that's the reason I make Schlar the heroine of the book, because she began her career, I try to show, as an external critic of Cold War liberalism. Now, some background is probably required. She wasn't well known at the time. She eventually, as one of the first female faculty members at Harvard, was 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 pretty well known and is best known for uh, an essay she wrote the very last year of the Cold War, 1989, uh, called The Liberalism of Fear, three years before she passed away prematurely in 1992. And, you know, her essay is brilliant because it just encapsulates the general disabused, pessimistic worldview of liberals who, who, who as she famously puts it, set out for the sake of cruelty reduction and damage control, not high ends like emancipation for the sake of freedom and equality. And, you know, she's almost become like stereotyped for these views. And what I try to show is that when she was a much younger person in the 1950s, even though she was also a Jew, she was, you know, a Holocaust survivor in a certain sense, a migrant, 
um, from Eastern Europe. She's actually from the same town uh, where Berlin was born. Schlar criticized Cold War liberalism, and it was really for some of the same reasons I'm skeptical about it, that it seemed to be giving up on what liberalism meant before World War II. Uh, it was no longer a theory of emancipation, but something that was for existed to, you know, watch out for state violence uh, and keep it from cruelty and 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 damage, which of course define the 20th century. And yet, even though she lived through those same events you referenced earlier, Nazism, the early Cold War, she she was holding out for the liberalism of the 19th century and hopes that there could be another optimistic framework for politics. And so I, I make her the heroine because all through the book, she's useful in criticizing some of the commitments Cold War liberals were making, even though in the end she became one herself. Okay, let's step back a little bit from these thinkers and their particular arguments. And I just want to try to understand better your argument. I'm going to tell you what I think you're doing and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. It seems to me you're arguing about what is the best conception of liberalism or the right conception of liberalism. or And then you have a preference for what came before the Cold War than what came during and after it and the prevailing liberalism. And so, but what is, how are we to judge? How are, how are those of us who are kind of outside this debate to judge? Is What's the normative framework? Is it that pre-Cold War liberalism is a, a more attractive vision to foster equality and peace? Is it that it's a more attractive conception of human nature? Is it those things that we ultimately have to grapple with to figure out who's right? I'm just trying to understand what the normative lens is. It's a totally fair question. I mean, I, I, I would like, let's say, challenge the assumption of the question in a certain way, because one of the points of, of the book is that, you know, liberalism was really not normative in the way that the question, you know, presupposes and, in, in, in you know, it's social contract theory was popular, you know, roughly in the time of John Locke and then in the time of John Rawls, but not in between. And so liberals didn't always think they could begin with first principles of morality and then judge what was happening against them. They thought the whole point of liberalism is that we live in ex through experience and in history. And that's what convinces us that, you know, history is about emancipation and making more people free and equal. Now we could get into, you know, a tough philosophical debate about like how we judge things when we're situated in that way, having to like read the tea leaves of history. But I'm just saying that that was what liberalism was about before law professors like us began to talk about like the normative view of things. However, I think your question deserves a, a more direct answer and I'd, I'd give a twofold one. One is that like, it seems like we can judge Cold War liberalism wanting by its own criteria, like from an internal point of view. Cold War liberals say what's most important is freedom and the continuity of liberal regimes. But then they seem to have this endless succession of enemies whom they can't always beat. Sometimes they can, communists. Other times they pursue or end up pursuing policies that, you know, create, you know, their own endless campaigns, the war on terror uh, that they, they themselves perpetuate. Or 
they pursue domestic policies that lead to enemies within. That's, I want to suggest, the, the, the case of the current situation with so-called populism, you know, Trump, the era of Trump and so forth. And so what do we say about a program that says it's about freedom and the, you know, the continuity of regimes as what matters most, but can't guarantee either thing because it's obsessed by keeping the state in control and using it, you know, if at all, for the sake of pursuing mortal threats to it. Well, that doesn't seem to be working out, honestly. Now we'd have to have a better alternative. And so that's where the second part of the answer would come into play. And it's like an external view. And it's, it is to say, let's, let's excavate earlier liberalism. And as a historian, I can't do more than that. Like I can't give you a normative theory of why we should want to have a perfectionist liberalism as opposed to a tolerationist one, uh, or, you know, a, a more historically minded one that has a, a, a conception of progress and is, is, you know, prioritizing the achievement of freedom and equality in history. But once we know that that's what liberalism was, that's how liberalism began, then we were forced to, you know, compare and contrast what liberalism was before World War II with what it has become since and make a choice. And of course, I'm going to choose, you know, aspects of the earlier liberalism. Others might read my book and say there was change over time in liberalism, but I like what it became. But at least we're having the argument and not assuming that liberalism is just what Cold War liberals said it was. So that feeds into my next question, and that is a question about the relationship between intellectual history or the history of ideas on the one hand and what we might call politics on the ground on the other. I mean, your book is about what a group of intellectuals were saying about the world predicament in over a 20 or 30 year period during the Cold War, the early Cold War especially. And it's also about their readings of one another in academic contexts and their readings of their predecessors. But you were also talking throughout or making the case throughout that there's a relationship between these ideas and arguments and actual domestic policy, actual foreign policy. And I'm just wondering what the connection is. I mean, one might think that what was going on in domestic and foreign politics may have been driven by the same things that were driving these thinkers to think the way they did, but that the thinkers themselves had no causal relationship to actual politics and therefore just kind of drop out of the picture. I suspect that's not what you think. Early in the book, you talk, you say that Sklar took the, took, and I'm quoting here, Sklar took the situation of political thought as a proxy for politics itself. Is that what you're doing? And in general, what is the relationship here between ideas and actual politics? Well, it's a fantastic question, and it really challenges just like my my own professional identity, which is historian of ideas. And, you know, I'm not going to make grand claims about that profession. It does what it does, and it, it illuminates certain things for those of us who like to read books and uh, assess how ideas change, but it certainly doesn't resolve the relationship between those ideas and everything else. Although, of course, everyone has ideas. Does 
does the world come first and then thought about it or is the other way around? I mean, I, I think it's some of both, but I would never make, you know, excessive claims that these thinkers ruined everything. I just think they deserve some, you know, criticism for ruining liberal theory. Actually, in the book, I, I, I and, I, and, and in our discussion, I've emphasized how there was a mismatch between Cold War liberal theory and liberal practice. The one was very critical of the state. The other was building the biggest liberal states in world history. But for that very reason, I think the Cold War liberals are, are worth some attention because the kinds of arguments they make serve the neoliberal project later. You know, the actual uh, reduction of the state to, you know, a, a much smaller, much less redistributive form than it, it had before. And so I, I, I would never claim there's an, an exact kind of mirroring between theory and practice or that theory changes practice. But I do think there's, you know, you know, theory can sometimes be a really useful proxy for thinking since we're all intellectuals if we're writing books you know how the world is changing how our society is changing and it's one window uh, it's not the only one by any means and you know i'm very you know interested in histories of liberal parties and liberal policies which also you know need to get you know a, a lot of attention and are not caused by isaiah berlin or judith Schlar. okay let me ask you about the relationship between the argument in this book and arguments in recent years that have come from what might be called the anti-liberal right, and I'm mm -hmm. thinking especially of the Catholic variety maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a review of your book alongside a review of Sorab Amari's new book, drawing connections between them. And in your last chapter, you mentioned Patrick Deneen's book, not the most recent one, but the one before it as a kind of I mean, you can tell me how you want to characterize it, but it seemed sure. to be in the same uh, ballpark as the kind of arguments you're making. So I'm just wondering, what is the relationship there, if any? Well, it's just a fact that, you know, Deneen, you know, kind of through the accident of publishing in such close proximity to Trump's victory in 2016, really has set off a, a grand, you know, referendum about liberalism. And that's definitely the setting for my own intervention, as I said at the top of, of the podcast. Um, I, I think that, you know, Deneen is wrong about most everything uh, in that book. He's wrong when it comes to the dating of liberalism. He thinks it began 500 years ago. He thinks Locke was a liberal. He thinks liberals in the 19th century, the ones to, you know, I'm trying to revive were just as bad as all the other liberals before and since. Uh, and I think above all, you know, kind of misses the significance of what happened to liberalism in the 20th century. So when his book first came out, I wrote a review of it called Neoliberalism, Not Liberalism Has Failed, because I think that's the case that if you, if you want to read it generously, Deneen actually makes. So I just wanted to, in a sense, execute his project better. Now, there's a lot about the, you know, new right, the new Catholic right, especially that I think is very debatable because, you know, its proposal, especially in, in equating liberalism with modernity the last 500 years, is just to junk the whole thing. 
and go back to what came before. Uh, and I think that misses the value of modern emancipation, which was the liberal project, uh, which I'm trying to rescue. So, you know, morally or normatively, my project's the opposite of theirs, but there is some overlap. And I would put it this way. It's very interesting that figures on the right led by some of these post-liberals, so Rob Amari, Adrian Vermeule, uh, notwithstanding their earlier commitments as conservatives, are now very critical precisely of neoconservatism and neoliberals, neoliberalism. But that's that's to join longstanding progressive or left critique of where America has been going wrong. And the the big question, I think, practically is whether you know, left and right can get along and join forces, not on big questions, because I think these folks are dead wrong on big questions. But when it comes to resistance to our neoconservative foreign policy and our neoliberal economics, they're they're friends and allies. And, you know, I think that they ought to be taken very seriously. Okay, my last question is an open-ended one. Um, So in reading outside of your book in preparation for, for the interview, I noticed that just kind of surveying the history of how Cold War liberalism has been treated, it's kind of been treated as something that's always, or it's always felt, it seems, as if it were under attack, or it's also, it's always been described as if in the late fifties, it was under attack, it was under attack and seen as inadequate, maybe different reasons in the sixties and then in the seventies. And it's kind of been under attack since since it was born, it seems to me. So that's the first right. thing I noticed. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then you close, your last chapter is called Why Liberalism Keeps Failing. Why Cold War Liberalism Keeps Co- Failing. Yeah, sorry. Why Cold War Liberalism Keeps Failing. Sorry. And so are those things connected? And just, just wrap it up for us by, by saying – by, by telling us why you think it keeps failing, Cold War liberalism. Right. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I almost see things, you know, in reverse that Cold War liberals were hegemonic in this country in, in the 40s and 50s. And it's for that reason that I'm interested in kind of studying the inception of their dominance ideologically. And then it's true they were challenged in the 1960s. But I think pretty amazingly, you know, outside some circles, kind of in 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 government and policy, they come to play an enormous role. You know, not just in the later Cold War, but after the Cold War. Uh, and I think the best evidence of this would have to be the significance of those grouped around the New Republic magazine in the 1980s and 1990s, and even after because they were proud liberals, but they were Cold War liberals who were bitterly critical of the left and did like, let's say, have relations to neoconservative foreign policy as it arose. And I think turned a blind eye to neoliberal economics as it ravaged the country and led to Donald Trump. So whom, of course, they later, you know, organized against and uh, in you know, really the the last few years of experience we've had. So, I, I I see Cold War liberalism with the a brief exceptional period that to which the Vietnam War, you know, their their biggest failed project to date, really led as pretty dominant 
in the history of this country and amazingly dominant in my own lifetime and especially after 1989. And so if you cast things that way, it seems like these are some pretty significant people and it's a very, you know, formidable worldview that's uh, only gotten kind of a bigger challenge in the last few years. Indeed, it's been in a certain way reasserted against Donald Trump, as well as through, you know, the Ukraine war against Vladimir Putin. And so it seems alive and well, if not, you know, hegemonic. And I think that's the context in which I'm trying to say maybe we should remember what came before it in case it would, you know, save us from this endless succession of crises and enemies. Sam Moyne, thank you very much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6. And check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.